0: Welcome to Discover Paediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Greve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Errol Gottlich with us today. Errol is a paediatric nephrologist. Uh, Before that he was a general paediatrician working in private practice and then specialised in paediatric nephrology after that. He's an honorary lecturer at the University of Pretoria and he initiated or founded Kidney Beans Trust, which helps kids obviously with renal failure. And he's also involved in the management of the biggest medical aid in southern Africa, we're looking at their kidney care unit. So we're fortunate to have Errol with us today, and we're going to talk about posterior urethral valves. Thanks for joining us, Errol. Sure, pleasure, Andrew. Errol, can you maybe uh, just let us know what exactly are
1: posterior urethral valves and why do they occur? Well, it is a genetic um, anomaly. Why they occur, I think, is unknown. Um, It's not an inheritable condition, and you very rarely, if ever, find it within families. However, Um, It really comes down to a genetic um, or a developmental anomaly of the posterior urethra. It occurs around very early in uh, embryogenesis, probably at around four weeks of gestation, where the um, caudal end of the Wolfian duct joins into the primitive cloaca um, at the site where the Virumontanum Uh, Develops in the posterior urethra, and through some anomaly of development, uh, there is the creation of these um, almost what appears to be cells within the posterior urethra, which um, create an obstructive uh, problem for urine coming out of the bladder into the urethra. So, fundamentally, uh, it is, is, is an obstructive developmental. Lesion of the posterior urethra. So you
0: mentioned that they looked like sails coming off the urethra. Are there different types of posterior urethral valves that we can get?
1: So I must say, in all my time, um, you know, caring for children with posterior urethral valves, um, I've never seen uh, type two or type three, um, or had a surgeon describe that they've operated on type two or three. So the literature describes three types. Um, type 1 is really the most common type. Um, the literature, again, describes its incidence or as at about 95% of all patients with urethral valves. That's a classic uh, form of valves that one finds in most patients. Um, there has been the description of type 2 and type 3. Uh, they really are sort of variants on of the theme, um, Type 3 is, is really the one that um, looks different really to type 1 in the sense that it is more a type of membranous obstruction with a a, a central perforation in that membrane but uh, acts very similar to um, the other types in the form of obstructive, of obstructive uropathy. So, um, yeah, there are these uh, various types but... Um, it really, you know, appears at a sort of clinical level and a, and a practical level as though type one seems to be almost, you know, the the prevailing type that one comes across uh, in, in almost every single case.
0: Yeah, Errol, you mentioned that uh, we alluded to the fact that it's, you know, it's a developmental issue that starts to occur on the fourth week of gestation. We're doing more and more antenatal screening these days what are some of the features that we pick up antenatally that may give us a clue that we're dealing with a patient with posterior urethral valves
1: so it's important to remember that you know valves is a spectrum uh, of pathology that it um, creates and really the uh, spectrum of obstruction varies between mild and very severe and really the, the clues will depend on the degree of obstructive uropathy that these valves are causing. Mm. Uh, the more severe, the earlier the um, clues that will present antenatally. Probably, you know, it depends on also when uh, the first antenatal um, maternal ultrasound is done okay. or fetal ultrasound is done. Um, you know, there are certain sensors that will do it later, some will do it earlier. But I think I would guess that the most important antenatal clue, certainly in the early phase of pregnancy, is um, a reduction of the amniotic fluid uh, surrounding the baby because um, in a severe obstructive uropathy, you'll certainly get less urinary output. So I I would think that the first warning sign of, um, and obviously, you know, that uh, circumstance is related to other um, antenatal conditions, but one of the conditions that would cause um, a lack of amniotic fluid would be severe urethral valves. However, as the, the bladder and the kidneys develop over time and um, antenatal ultrasounds are done, and one hopes that, uh, you know, accurate and focused uh, ultrasounds um, are performed that will look at the kidneys and the um, the bladder um, the, one of the most important signs is a dilated um, or enlarged bladder which often would uh, give an indication that there is obstruction okay. and um, once the obstruction becomes um, established within that bladder you know, the pressure has only got one way to go, and that's up into the ureters. It often goes unilaterally. It can go bilaterally, but often the pressure will go unilaterally, and therefore, you know, a baby, a male baby with an enlarged bladder, a unilateral or or bilateral hydronephrosis hydrauretor would certainly be a cause of concern as regards the possibility of posterior valves, and this would be uh, need to be taken in consideration with reduced um, amniotic fluid, as well. And one would therefore sort of start getting a picture that there is some form of obstructive uropathy, which is um, you know below the level of the bladder. Mm.
0: So I mean, we would obviously those kinds of kids we would follow very closely postnatally. We just because of our environment, we don't have a lot of antenatal screening done, and most of these kids present um, obviously, you know, after birth. You know, there's obviously some overlap in terms of some of the symptoms. But what's the most common clinical symptom that you see in a child that ends up having posterior urethral valves?
1: So again, the um, in the very severe form of um, obstructive uropathy. Um, you know, specifically in relation to this topic of posterior valves, if there is a marked reduction of um, amniotic fluid, one of the consequences would be um, pulmonary hyperplasia. Mm. So, a child with you know severe reduction, or born with, to a mother with um, severe uh, amniotic fluid reduction and uh, severe respiratory distress. Um, and shown to have um, pulmonary hyperplasia, you know, that would be obviously almost the most severe form of presentation of a child with obstructive uropathy and, and reduced urinary output during the, um, the uh, antenatal period.
0: Yeah.
1: The most common symptom that one needs to look at in examining a newborn baby, because often it happens, is the urinary stream. Okay. and it's something that you actually have to consciously look at so in the vast majority of male newborns you will be able to induce a good urinary stream and it's really a sort of subconscious way of of um, parking um, the lack of a problem in your mind that this male baby probably and and very likely does not have urethral valves if you get a very early urinary stream and in fact one of the things that one should do in examining a male baby from day to day if one is, is assessing that baby in the postnatal ward is to actually ask the mother, has the baby got an adequate urinary stream? And if, the, and if you don't elicit a good urinary stream, certainly within the first 24 to 48 hours, it really is a very important, simple clinical sign to start alerting you to the possibility of unrecognized or undiagnosed posterior urethral valves. But a mother, speci- specifically a mother who's um, had other male babies and is used to a strong urinary stream, will often volunteer the fact that the baby doesn't have a strong stream or is dribbling. Yeah. And um, you know that is a really very important, simple clinical sign without any... Sort of reliance on special investigations um, to alert you to the to the possibility of unrecognized renal anomalies during the antenatal period. However, if there has been recognition of a renal anomaly, specifically that lends itself towards obstructive uropathy, such as posterior valves, um, you know one needs to really do an accurate postnatal renal ultrasound with specific attention on what the bladder wall looks like, the bladder capacity looks like, and the upper renal tracts. And in a male baby, if there's any doubt that there may be posturethral valves, uh, then one needs to follow that very early on after delivery, you know, within the first 24, 48 hours with a voiding sister urethrogram.
0: All right. So, I mean, you would start with an ultrasound as your first... Yeah. Modality of choice, and if you're suspicious on that, um, you would then move on to doing a avoiding sister urethrogram. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the features that you typically see on a, on a sister urethrogram in kids with posterior urethral valves?
1: So, again, you know, it, it, it's, it depends on the um, extent of the valves. I think the most important component of doing avoiding cyst urethrogram is the fact that one has to get a catheter into the bladder to do it and that's not always easy with posturethral valves especially in a in a child with tight valves right so the issue at hand is you know in order to to do this investigation you need to in fact catheterize the baby and that's where the challenge and the and the clinical care comes into it because what you really want to do is come up with a diagnosis, but on the same, uh, in the same context, you don't really want to traumatize the the urethra more than the abnormality that exists there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there is a, a specific skill in catheterizing a male baby, whether they have valves or they don't have valves. There's a tendency uh, within a neonatal units to use. Um, Nasogastric tubes as catheters, something which I discourage because they don't create a closed system. You, get, you do get size 6 and size 8 Foley's catheters or silastic catheters, which, uh, w- which, if inserted, you can connect up to a eurometer, not a nasogastric tube bag, um, and create a closed aseptic system. Obviously, the insertion of the catheter needs to be under strict aseptic techniques. And the thing is that, um, you know, you need to maneuver the penis up towards the the cranial aspect of the baby when you're catheterizing in order to follow the natural curve of the urethra in order to get your best chance of passing that catheter through the the obstructive valves. Now, that's often easier said than done because you often come across a very tight valve which you cannot pass a catheter through Mm -hmm. and that's where you've got to make a decision you know how how hard do you push that catheter because at the end of the day you know uh, we've certainly seen perforations of a catheter right through the urethra into the scrotum which is not a complication that one really wants to to cause so there's a degree of firmness that one needs to push that catheter but I think if you're reaching a point where you feel that it's very likely to be problematic, or in fact even if the catheter curls itself back and comes out of the urethral meatus, I think you really need to abandon a, the catheter um, component and and you know you start seeking other uh, um, treatment modalities, which I'm sure we'll we'll discuss shortly. So once you've got the catheter in, you know, the baby goes down to the X-ray department. I think it's important that people with some experience in in doing cystograms um or voiding cystourethrograms in babies is involved in the um investigation if possible but the important issue at hand is is that you know after filling the the bladder with contrast and the signs that one would really look for is is a sort of um crenated type bladder they may even be diverticulae. Mm. Um, the ultrasound may have uh, and probably did suggest that there was a thickened bladder wall. You then need to um, you know, measure the amount of contrast you, you instill into that bladder because a lot of these bladders are very thick, small volume bladders. But then the most important thing is to actually remove the catheter because you need to um, see radiologically um, the contrast within the um, urethra and specifically the posterior urethra, showing the dilated posterior urethra and the the typical um, spinning top sign that goes together with um, you know valve diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it's not a difficult um, investigation to prove valves. But you just, like everything, need a good investigation and you need um, good interpretation of that investigation to ensure that you really are, you know, coming up with the appropriate diagnosis.
0: Errol, can I ask you, I mean, there's a lot of controversy in terms of the type of catheter you use and you've yeah. obviously alluded to your preference. Some people suggest that a Foley's catheter is almost contraindicated because the balloon may cause obstruction at the ureteric orifices or at the posterior urethra. But you obviously haven't had that uh, issue in terms of your patients using, I assume because you're using smaller or appropriate Foley's
1: catheters. You know, I I certainly don't have have a problem with the bulb whatsoever. Really, the issue at hand is that you need to ensure that that catheter is placed within the bladder, that the bulb is is, uh, ballooned up within the bladder, not within the posterior urethra. And, you know, if you're really struggling, you know, and you have the uh, facilities at hand, the important thing is really to get a radiologist to assist you in, in identifying that the bulb actually is within the bladder rather than traumatizing the posterior urethra. So I think you need to understand that when you are catheterizing a child or male baby with potential posturethral valves, there is this uh, tendency or there is this um, opportunity which you really don't want to um, create of of creating secondary trauma Mm -hmm. uh, where it's unnecessary. So you you need to really take care as to um, the force that you're trying to push the bladder, the position that you're leaving the bladder, that you are... um, Inflating the bulb of the bladder within the of the catheter within the bladder and not the posterior urethra. And I think if you go through those steps with care, um, it's very unlikely that in fact you're going to be causing um, secondary injury or trauma.
0: And in the event that you've been unable to put in a urethral catheter, have you resorted to
1: suprapubic catheterization? Or what's your next step in those patients? Yeah. So, you know, I think you've got to also understand that what you're dealing with is a baby with posturethral valves. So, you know, at that point in time, you've got to understand that this baby is now um, continuing to be aneuric or oligonuric and the complications related to that as well. Um, obviously, one has to at some point test uh, renal function, understanding that within the first 24 hours, a lot of the creatinine levels, etc., may be reflective of the mother's, Renal function, mm. but you need to start understanding well what impact is this obstructive uropathy having on the child in order to um, guide you as to how urgent uh, further intervention is. So, you know, in um, clinics and hospitals where one is fortunate to have backup of pediatric surgeons, um, obviously the the opportunity then is is consulting a, a your pediatric uh, surgeon who's available to you in order to create some um, drainage from the bladder in whatever form is possible. So in the situation where um, formal uh, procedures such as a vesicostomy or a suprapubic isn't possible, you know, even trying to pass a, a gelco within the bladder. Uh, in order to create temporary drainage, you know, is not an unreasonable route to go um, uh, in order to create drainage. But one's always got to sort of weigh up the um, the need for drainage compared to the the clinical situation of the child, the urgency, etc. Um, you certainly want to try and create some sort of bladder drainage, whether it's a suprapubic or a vesicostomy, and controlled and surgical conditions, but that's not always available to everybody. And I would far rather, you know, be able to, in an urgent situation, instead of leaving the baby with obstructive uropathy, try and create some bladder diversion with a a simple insertion of a co into the bladder, which in fact I've done many times and it's created, you know, a very adequate drainage uh, process for 28 48 hours until you can get uh, further assistance
0: mm-hmm. and then uh, once you've made the diagnosis i mean is there any reason to delay
1: uh, cystoscope valve ablation yeah so it often again depends on the baby um you know surgical techniques and scopes have improved over the years and i think um, what's available now wasn't available many years or five ten years ago where you are able to scope smaller babies Mm. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, you need qualified people to treat urethral valves um, it is a and it has the potential to be an absolutely devastating condition, in the short and the long term. And really, what you re- what you re- want to do is to create a adequate and safe clinical solution. And it doesn't really matter, I would guess, which one uh, you choose, as long as the priority is that whatever you choose to go, whether it's primary ablation or bladder drainage, you do in a way that doesn't aggravate um, or cause further complications and harm at the time. Because you can always do delayed procedures in time. However, the preferred technique in a baby who is, um, whose weight and size is suitable to have a primary ablation, still remains primary ablation. Mm-hmm. And um, I would always um, promote that if possible um, as long as um, the uh, equipment and the condition of the child and the clinical um, you know, situation under which this is all being performed is conducive to primary ablation. If it isn't, then... You know, the ablation can come as a later procedure and you would rather concentrate on trying to perform a a bladder drainage procedure, whether it's a a vesicostomy or suprapubic. But generally, I prefer, if possible, and if all conditions are optimal, a primary ablation. And my advice always to the surgeon is to do a circumcision at the same time um, with permission of the parents and the understanding that a circumcision for child with urethral valves has definitely been shown to be of significant clinical benefit.
0: So in terms of decreasing the urinary infection rates, It's
1: got two benefits. You know, the fact is that many children with posturethral valves will have recurrent urinary tract infections at which time you then become confused as to whether it's a bladder issue or an uncircumcised issue. So, with a circumcised child, you, number one, remove the source of um, uh, se- you know, infection or sepsis as regards uh, the predisposition to urinary tract infection, but you also remove the potential for another form of obstructive uropathy. And, you know, what you really don't want is a child with a obstructive uropathy and a phimosis Mm -hmm. because that really just adds to the obstructive element. So both from relieving any and every um, opportunity of obstructive uropathy and the risk of unitract infections, I think circumcision has a a hugely important and almost obligatory role in in managing children with posturethral valves.
0: So usually we cut the valves at 5, 7, and 12 o'clock um, you know, once the surgeons have managed to ablate the valves, how do you normally follow these children up?
1: So, you know, it really depends, again, at what stage this, 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 this ablation is being done. But if one assumes that we're following the normal sort of process of a well baby, a male baby, you know, who's well-grown, who's clinically well and has an ablation done within the first, you know, five, seven days after delivery, um, the most important thing here in the follow-up um, is to ensure that the parents are aware of um, unitract r- infection risk, and obviously to um, you know bring their child for medical care if they show any features of unitrack, um infection. The second issue which we've become very attuned to is that we always ask for repeat Um, scope, uh, approximately two or three months after the initial scope, because um, certainly in my experience and many other, I think, pediatric surgeons' surgeons experience, despite the almost optimal um, perception of ablation of valves, on a second scope, one often, in fact, finds residual valves, Mm -hmm. and a child will need a... um, uh, further ablation of any residual valves that may be noted because there is just no um, opportunity or um, circumstance where one should leave any element of uh, urethral obstruction. It's certainly going to make you know the long term outlook for these children worse in those circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Um, Errol, I agree with you in terms of
0: First prize, trying to ablate posterior urethral valves once we've made the diagnosis. Um, but you know we've had the occasional small neonates that was too small to admit a cystoscope, and thus a catheter was left inside you. And um, occasionally, those kids have actually devastating urinary sepsis related to these chronic catheterizations. I mean, are there any category of patients where you would actually consider a vesicostomy as the primary surgery for patients as
1: opposed to doing a valve ablation? No, no. absolutely. So I think the vesicostomy, a well done vesicostomy, has um, an absolute place in, in children. So there's a number of circumstances where a is a better situation. Um, certainly the small premature baby or the um, unwell baby with hyperplastic lungs on a ventilator, etc., just will not ever tolerate a primary ablation. And I think one there, therefore needs to sort of use a modality of treatment such as a V.C. costomy as, as a definitive treatment until later ablation can happen. So provides a very, you know, sort of safe option of um, Creating um, urinary drainage without having to go through you know a, a procedure in which a child really is not suitable for a primary ablation and or is not big enough to you know have a um, a scope inserted so the clinical so the size of the baby is certainly an important parameter the clinical state of the baby is also extremely important. Um, I can remember a number of cases we've come in with very severe sepsis, uh, you know, highline membrane disease, or respiratory distress related to pulmonary hyperplasia, at which a VC costomy is absolutely the the most appropriate um, uh, treatment to do. The other situation where um, you know there's a relative indication, in many ways, is um in in a case in a few cases i can recall where i've been unable to catheterize a child and or child has um, been referred to us with uh, secondary trauma related to repeated catheterizations etc I, d- I honestly don't believe um doing a primary ablation in a traumatized Urethra is probably the way to go, and I think it's probably better to do a vesicostomy. Let the whole urethra uh, trauma settle down, and one can always go at a later stage and do your primary ablation once the the urethra, you know, has has settled clinically. So there's definitely a place for a vesicostomy, but it's a difficult procedure because the issue at hand is in a. Um, Situation where you know the surgeon has to deal with a small thickened bladder. You've got to exteriorize, exteriorize that bladder as a costomy. The risk is that it's too large, and then there may be herniation. The risk is that it's too small, and there's not adequate drainage, and it needs further dilatation. So, I think real real care needs to be taken as to the, the procedure, with the understanding that you're not attaching a normal bladder to the uh, lower abdominal wall, but you're attaching a very abnormal bladder to the lower abdominal wall. And um, I think follow-up of a costomy is really incredibly important as to determine uh, not so much whether it's too large. Uh, Large v costomies are fine because they drain well. They may frighten the parents a little bit to have this herniated bladder sitting on or elements of the bladder sitting on the lower abdominal wall. But the biggest, bigger risk is uh, stenosis of the VC costomy orifice because if you start getting, you are literally just recreating a um, an obstructive uropathy as it was. So, in a child, and I think you've got to warn the parents that if there's inadequate drainage or, or stop dri- you know stop draining well and just starting to dribble, you know they needed to bring your attention because um, at that stage you really need to do a dilatation and at the worst you need to remove the VC costomy. Mm. Yeah,
0: I mean. Uh I must say, they're not the easiest procedures to do, and they do tend to go one or two extremes. It's quite hard to get the middle ground. But as you say, obviously, the most important thing is to drain the urinary system. Uh, you know, Once kids have got vesicostomies, how do you decide then when it's time to close the vesicostomy and simultaneously ablate the
1: valves? What's your endpoints, or are there real endpoints? So you know, the, the priority in obstructive uropathy, and it really doesn't matter whether it's valves or any other situation, is to ensure that in the first year or two of life that the child um, really does not suffer um, untoward consequences or complications of this condition. So what you really want in the first year of life, in the first year or two of life, is you want a child to remain as sepsis-free as possible with the least amount of urinary tract infections. You want drainage specifically, obviously, of the upper tracts um, so that there's no further aggravation of any renal dysfunction. You want the child to thrive, you want the child to develop, and you want the child to keep out of hospital as long as possible. So your primary objective in whatever procedure you do, whether it's primary ablation, V.C. costumes, et cetera, is to achieve all of the above. You really want to create in the first critical year or two of a child's life that opportunity to thrive, develop, keep well and keep out of hospital. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in fact, there really is no rush to risk um, putting those priorities, you know, uh, at risk. And therefore, in many circumstances, even though the child does thrive and it's a, it's a nice, uh, developmentally normal child at six or nine months of age, the general approach is, is that we've almost pushed it to 18 months of age. Uh, 18 months, even two years of age, while the child's still in nappies and the V.C. me really doesn't have an impact on the child or the family particularly, um, and then start thinking about reversing. But it becomes then, you know, a very important component because reversal in, in certain um, experiences has in fact um, created or exacerbated uh, renal dysfunction in many children that I've treated. And in fact, chronic renal failure has in fact uh, followed children who've had poor inappropriately thought through closures of, of V.C. costomies.
0: Yeah, I will. I mean, we'll touch on that. I think yeah. as time goes on, mm. um, you know, I mean, I think it's probably one of the components, as you say, of you know the relatively poor outcomes that kids with posterior valves have in general. Um, maybe you can just give us some insight into what the different factors are. I mean, obviously, you know, obstructive uropathy is one of the, the issues related to posterior valves. But, you know, once you've alleviated the obstruction, there's still a portion of children that end up going, progressing to renal failure, regardless of having no obstruction left. So there must be more to the situation than just that. What are some of the other aspects um, that help us determine the outcome in kids with posterior urethral valves?
1: So I think one needs to really consider valves as a full full renal tract abnormality and not really posterior urethral valves. And it really also depends on your assessments um, early on as to what the upper tracts are doing in relation to the posturethral valves. So there is some debate as to whether valves is really a sort of local abnormality or whether it's more part of a general renal tract abnormality. Um, and I, don't, I think the jury's out at this stage as regards that, however... The problem with valves is that beyond creating an obstructive uropathy, it affects the upper tracts. If you're a child with um, severe valves, there are a number of circumstances that may apply. You either may get a very thick bladder um, and therefore you create an increased intraversical uh, pressure situation. Uh, into which the upper tracts cannot drain adequately, and you get bilateral uh, hydronephrosis, hydroureter, and um, pressure within the renal tracts, which obviously over time, uh, even by the time the baby is born, has caused significant renal dysfunction. So that's a situation where a thickened high-pressure bladder will affect both kidneys um, at that, you know, in that way. Mm. The other situation which may be, in fact, more protective for a child is where one kidney is protected and the other kidney is subject to severe reflux. And in fact, in many circumstances, is a non-functioning um, refluxing kidney. Now, in those circumstances, that kidney is going to um, cause uh, a number of problems. One, it's going to be a source of recurrent sepsis because of the reflux. And number two, it's going to exacerbate any bladder dysfunction because of the reflux. And the, what, what happens in Andrew in this situation is that as the bladder contracts, you're going to get a fair amount of urine going up into that a refluxing system, as the bladder relaxes, there's going to be dumping of urine from that system back into the kidney. So, what that causes is a significant post micturition bladder volume, which predisposes to sepsis. But more importantly, it does not allow the bladder to function as a bladder should function because it doesn't have a normal circumferential ability to hold urine and to expand. So a great priority in the way that I treat children very early on is at about a month of age after primary ablation um, specifically, I would do a MAG-3 if I was worried about any such circumstance such as that. If I find that um, in relation with a, a VCU that there's gross reflux into a non-functioning kidney, in fact, my general approach is that at the second scope I would discuss the possibility with the paediatric surgeon of doing a a, a unilateral nephro for that non-functional, grossly refluxing kidney because I think it holds great risk as to the um, incidence of recurrent infections and also the long-term development of a bladder, a normal bladder, because as we'll come to in further discussion... The medium to long term outcome of a child with valves in relation to the development of renal failure is almost always related to how the bladder functions. Mm. The earlier you try and establish a normal functioning bladder or as close to a normally functioning bladder, the less urinary tract infections you'll have and the the less upper renal tract uh, complications that you'll have. So you've got to be absolutely focused from very, very early on after delivery as to what's happening in the upper renal tracts because it not only affects, um, as I said, uh, the the risk of urinary tract infection, but it affects how that that bladder develops over time. So another technique, obviously, is to try and relax a very thickened bladder. um, And uh, there is the use of anticholinergics which we generally start at about six months of age, Um, I think it's a very important modality of treatment to use um, and to use it for a very long time Mm. because I think it takes, in fact, years for valve bladders to relax and to start obtaining a normal normal bladder function. So the one benefit I have in the rooms um, is that we have a Uroflow machine and once a child can void uh, spontaneously, we start measuring the uroflow dynamics um, in order to ascertain what bladder capacity is like, what contraction and relaxation is like. And you know if you really, really focus on, on how children, children's bladders are, you know, are are managed post-delivery, either surgically and or medically. You know, you can, in fact, either avoid or delay many children going into end-stage kidney failure. You know, either by a very long period of time or, hopefully, forever.
0: Yeah, I must say it's quite interesting to hear you talk about it from that perspective. So, coming from a surgical perspective, it's always quite controversial about doing a hemi nephrectomy in these type of children, for the reason that a lot of surgeons try and keep that dilated ureter for the possibility of doing a bladder augmentation later on life if the bladder fails. But in some ways what you're saying is that by leaving that ureter behind and the kidney behind, you might actually be causing or exacerbating that bladder failure. Yeah. And in some ways, the bladder is actually more important to save early on and there are other modalities you can use for an augmentation should the need arise. So I must say that's very interesting to hear that different approach and
1: that that almost necessity, as you say, of treating the bladder as soon as possible. Yeah. So I can tell you, Andrew, in certainly all my time of treating, you know, a vast number of children with posture valves, I've never had to go through a circumstance of augmenting a bladder mm. Um, mm. for posture valves. I, be, I think the big issue at hand is as well is that you've got to think beyond the, the early phase because you've got to think about, you know, if that bladder has caused that child to go into chronic renal failure, that bladder is going to cause a transplanted kidney to fail as well. Mm, mm. So, you know, you've almost got to think beyond um, the first, you know, three to five years because you cannot transplant a a child with a dysfunctional bladder.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you've spoken a bit about this
0: concept of a valve bladder. And I mean, you know, Mitchell coined the term in 1982, but... Maybe you can just tell us exactly what what is a valve bladder i mean he's i mean the concept has changed a bit since he's discussed it but what what is a valve bladder?
1: What do we mean when we talk about a valve bladder so um you know in my understanding um, with um, chronic obstruction and remember you know this abnormality forms very early in pregnancy, four to six weeks of gestation by the time that baby is born. You know, which is eight months later, this bladder has been subjected to prolonged period of abnormal drainage and, and an inability to, to drain urine uh, properly. So, one of the sort of simplistic ways of looking at its compensation techniques is to really sort of thicken its muscles um, and to try to sort of overcome the pressure. I think it's quite simplistic to think of bladders as just being, um, you know, circ- circumferential muscular organs with a detrusor um, outlet uh, because they really are, it is an extremely complicated organ as such. But really, what happens, and fundamentally, what happens, is that the bladder does not follow the normal function which a bladder should follow. So, what a bladder should do. As you get older, bladder should fill and completely empty 67 times a day. So we're not talking about night. We're talking about 67 times a day. There should be adequate fillage of a bladder and there should be complete drainage of a bladder. A valve bladder doesn't do that. Yeah. A valve bladder is dysfunctional in its nature. It often doesn't fill adequately and it doesn't often drain adequately. And its frequency is erratic and is often in erratic behavior at night. So it has features of what we call an overactive bladder as well. But it really just does not follow normal bladder function. And that's my interpretation of a, a valve bladder. So in everything that I do in managing a child with a valve bladder, I try and achieve what normal function is. And therefore, there's issues of creating as much anatomical normality as possible. And I'm a proponent. If to go back to your comment of taking out a non-functional, gross refluxing bladder, um, I'm not a great proponent of VC costomy as compared to primary ablation, where primary ablation is possible, because of the interruption of the the bladder. Um, uh, anatomy with a VC costomy. I'm um, um, also um, uh, will use other modalities to drain upper renal tracts instead of going for a VC costomy if I can avoid it, such as loop ureterostomies. And I think you've seen that in my practice, where in order to maintain the integrity of a bladder, but in order, to, you know, when you can't pass a double J stent through the thickened wall, instead of just doing a VC costomy, Think about doing a loop ureterostomy and retaining the integrity of the bladder. Mm -hmm. Um, There's relaxation of the bladder with anticholinergics. When the child's older, there's toilet training, toilet positioning, which is important. Um, There's avoidance of constipation. There's avoidance or management of chronic urinary tract infections. So everything that you're trying to do is to replicate what a normal bladder should do. Because obviously by doing that, your chance of protecting the upper renal tracts are much higher. And if, unfortunately, the child lands up uh, needing a transplant, the transplanted kidney at least has the best chance of long-term survival uh, into as normal a functioning bladder as possible. Because believe me, if it's not adequately functioning, that transplant graft um, you know, won't last more than two or three years.
0: Yeah, it's going to suffer the same fate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I really, you know, you really try and gauge each patient because I think each patient has variable degrees of valve bladders. Mm. Um, But certainly with those with obvious valve bladders, and they'll come into the rooms. You know, these are the kids who at four or five years of age are are still wearing nappies because they have incontinence, uh, they have lack of control. Um, you know, these are the ch- children who really, unfortunately, you know, are of very high risk of having long term. And, and, you know, I, I think as pediatricians, we don't see these children um, into teenage years often or even adulthood. But my guess is that even if they've escaped renal failure, these adults um, who've been born with urethral valves still to some extent have dysfunctional bladder fu- um, you know, function.
0: Yeah, I mean, with all these potential risks and actually quite a high rate of you know, renal failure as time goes on, I mean, it's quite controversial, but what are your thoughts on regarding antenatal valve ablation or visigabniotic shunting for these children?
1: So I think it went through sort of phases of um, enthusiasm. Um, I think the current phase of um, sort of uh, pers- you know perception of this as a treatment is probably not to do it in my understanding of of current trends and where i have seen antenatal drainage of um, dilated bladders i've just come across the most horrendous uh, complications and one of the complications that i've seen is just a tremendous amount of anterior abdominal wall injury um, from antenatal drainage. So in my view, um, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't have enough experience, I would guess, to sort of comment or give a recommendation as to what current practice should be. But from first principles, I think the more appropriate route of management antenatally is early recognition Delivery of the baby when maturity has been determined, and you know um, adequate and appropriate postnatal management of the circumstances one's dealing with, I think the antenatal risk of inducing um, significant complications um, you know is either going to put the pregnancy at risk, the mother at risk. And potentially the the postnatal management at risk because of some sort of perception of heroic intervention.
0: On that note, thank you so much. It's been an enlightening discussion. Are there any take home messages you'd like to leave with us?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think the the issue in many of these cases is that they have presented late in many circumstances. I think the most frightening um, situation that I had was a child who presented to me at six months of age passing urine through the Euracus. And obviously that just represented you a know, complete um, uh, obstructive uropathy. I think many of these children can be managed adequately to the point that they can achieve reasonable bladder function. Many of these children, where a statistic of 50% were shown to land up in end-stage kidney failure, I think that uh, percentage can be reduced significantly with adequate care. Um, And I think people need to think as a take-home message that posturethral valves is not a urethral abnormality, but it's a renal tract abnormality. And I think if you uh, think of that uh, more um, clearly, you know, your investigations and your uh, treatment and your um, long-term view of that child you know, will put certainly um, be an advantage to the, um, the long-term outcomes.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Errol. We appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. We've learned a lot. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.